So as we come to the passage today, again, we're going to be thinking about what it looks like to, uh, to, live, to live a life of faith. David helps us especially with this. There's more space given to David's dialogue in this passage than Saul's dialogue. Uh, that's one way the narrator helps us know who we're supposed to be paying closer attention to. Uh, so we're going, to, we're going to let the balance of that, uh, sort out the balance of our study today. We'll spend much more time with what David uh, says here than with what Saul says, but we will, we will speak to both. Uh, and, we'll, and we'll set the context for, for the study today in this way. Uh, the hymn writer John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, among many other hymns. Uh, John Newton, he was also a pastor. He was a minister in the Church of England. And he was a very prolific writer, not just in terms of the hymns he wrote, but also in terms of letters he would write to parishioners, letters he would write to others, uh, as, well as, as well as many sermons. Uh, it said that he was a much better letter and sermon writer than he was a sermon preacher. We'll never know, but his, his letters and sermons are very helpful. Uh, and much of what he's written has been preserved in his, in his works. And in the first volume of John Newton's works, there's a portion of a letter he wrote to a young man who just finished seminary and was about to begin his first uh, pastoral charge. And, and among an enormous amount of wise counsel that Newton offers to this new pastor in the letter, uh, Newton passes on one nugget of wisdom that's particularly helpful, and, I, and I'm going to read it to you this morning. Um, so, so he's just spent some time talking to the minister about how it's important that he is faithful in the study. He needs to study the scriptures carefully. And then he needs to spend time devotionally with the Lord. He, he talks about how there's no a real ministry that's going to be effective out of a dead faith in the life of a pastor. So he spent time on that. And, th and then he makes this comment. He says, converse much with experienced Christians and exercised souls. Uh, exercised souls is Newton's way of talking about Christians who are going through suffering. Like you're being exercised in your faith. That's his word for that. So converse much with experienced Christians and exercise souls. For, those, for though some circumstances vary, the heart of man, the aids of grace, and the temptations of Satan in general are universally the same, so that what you see in ten persons may apply to ten thousand. I'll just, I'll just read that one more time. So, so this is his advice. Converse much with experienced Christians and exercise souls. For though some circumstances vary, the heart of man, the aids of grace, and the temptations of Satan in general are universally the same, so that what you see in ten persons may apply to ten thousand. So, so in part, what, what Newton was, was getting at is that there is this universality to the Christian experience and that while our particular circumstances may differ in a variety of ways, in another sense, there is great commonality that runs through our experiences as we live out our lives of faith, uh, which is really what the Apostle Paul gets at when he's writing to the Corinthians and he tells them uh, things like, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to humankind. Right, but, but part of the wisdom that's found here, which is, which is what Newton is getting at, is that as we watch and as we learn from others, whether they be seasoned Christians or whether they, they're currently uh, enduring hardship as exercised souls, now the wisdom that's found here is that we can learn from the experiences of others, even though their circumstances may be somewhat different than ours, in that the lessons of, of, of a faith-filled life can apply, apply more broadly than the immediacy of their own experiences. The lessons that we can watch take place in their lives can be applied to our life as we seek to live out a, 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 a life of trust in, in the Lord. And we find that to be so true as we read through the, 
experience of King David and even his tensions with Saul in this first Samuel narrative. Because on the one hand, what's been going on in the narrative is so extremely far removed from us. There's a sense in which it couldn't be more far removed from us. I mean, David is hiding in the hill country of Hakala opposite Jeshimon. It's totally meaningless to us, isn't it? The, the geographical detail there is so far removed from our experience, we can't even put words to how irrelevant that seems to us. Right? Just like getting chased by a king with 3,000 special forces soldiers is so removed from our Mondays, we don't even have categories for that. Right? Yet, when it comes to lessons of faith, when it comes to the truth of what it looks like to trust and obey the God of the Bible, well, all of a sudden, David becomes extremely relevant. We can see that, that in 10 uh, people's experiences, that can apply to 10,000, like Newton says, because what we see in David and Saul becomes very real in that there's something common in our human experience, in our life of faith, as we reflect on the fact, not so much that David was in these particular geographical locations, but David was in the wilderness. And we've talked at length about that. And while we don't know the exact nature of the wilderness David was in, we don't know the geography of that area, we do know what it's like to have wilderness experiences of our own, far removed from the comforts of, 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 our, of, our, of our fellow the believers, maybe far removed from the experiences of, of, uh, of renewing joy. That's where David's at, and we can, then we can identify with that. And so this identifiable commonality is something that, uh, that we can pay attention to, and, and especially as we come to the text this morning, when we start thinking about what it looks like to live out our lives of faith. Uh, because in this passage, David's experience is very positively instructive for us. There's, there's help here as we think about our own lives following the Lord. And, and as we would expect, while Saul's presence is here, Saul's presence is helpful too, because uh, like we already said, there are good lessons to learn from bad examples. We know the what not to do lesson can be just as potent as the what to do lesson at times in our lives. And so as we start in today, uh, again, we've got this we've got this picture here of of living a life of faith. Uh, part of part of what it looks like to learn and work through obedience to God in the context that can be very pressing and difficult. Um, and, he, and even as we say that, it's possible, maybe even this week, it's possible that the notion of trusting has just seemed tiring to you. You've been trusting in the Lord. You are trusting in the Lord. But it just seems like the strength is drying up. What does it look like to keep going? We're no strangers to those intervals in life when we're seemingly out of energy. We're running really low on the necessary compulsion to keep going in an exercised kind of faith. And no doubt by this point in all that's gone on in David's life, David is tired. Maybe you're tired this morning. And a passage like this comes and it gives us a picture of what a faith that keeps going looks like. And so what we're going to do is we're, we're just going to work through this. Again, it's a bit of a wheelbarrow dump. There's so much here. We, can, we can't even say it all, but we're not going to spend another week in chapter 26, I promise. We're just going to, but we're going to get to some things. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to begin really in verses 7 to 9. That's where we'll, that's where we'll jump in. We remember what's gone on. Uh, David's been betrayed by the Ziphites again. Saul finds out where David is. So, uh, David's gone to, uh, uh, to get after Saul. Uh, and, and, and while, or Saul's gone to get after David. And, and while Saul has done that, David has actually figured out uh, where Saul is encamped. And so in verses 7 to 9, what we can do is start by seeing this example in David's life of a, of a growth in obedience in his life of faith. We're, we're showing something here of, of a growth in obedience. Uh, in fact, if you just have an eye on, on 7 to 9, um, I'll, I'll just read it again so it's fresh for us. 
There we read that that night David and Abishai came to the troops and Saul was lying there asleep in the inner circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. Abner and the troops were lying around him. Uh, then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy to you. Let me thrust the spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him, for who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent? Um, so again, remembering where things are at, David and Abishai here have snuck into the camp successfully in verse 7, and Saul's sleeping with his spear stuck in the ground right next to him. Abner, who's the chief of his military operations, Abner's asleep uh, next to Saul. 3,000 troops are surrounding Saul as he sleeps. And Abishai says to David in verse 8, basically, again, this, this is the day that the Lord has made. Right, let, let me thrust Saul's spear through him. Let's, let's be done with this threat once and for all. I won't need a second shot. This is our chance will take Saul out. Um, now, now, at this point, we have to reflect on, on how the narrative has, has been revealing David's own progress in, in the things that have gone on in, 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 the recent, in the recent past. Because in David's recent experience, back in chapter 4, where he first had a chance to kill Saul, there we saw that David actually started by acting quite rashly. He acted compulsively, thinking he was going to kill Saul in the very beginning. He cut off a piece of Saul's robe while Saul was in the entrance of the cave. Remember where David was hiding? David acted rashly. He acted impulsively. Uh, however, following his actions, we were told there in the text that David was struck in his heart, which is a way of speaking about our conscience being pricked. David was pricked in our conscience uh, because of what he was about to do. He was convicted that what he was doing is wrong. And so instead of killing Saul, he recognized there in that setting that, that, that he should not touch the Lord's anointed which was in chapter 24. And then we get into chapter 25, and what is David doing? Well, David's acting rashly and impulsively uh, with, with the revenge motivation again. And that time, it seemed to be fairly justifiable as well because Nabal, the one whose flock David and his men had guarded, Nabal refused to repay David and his men for any of their work, but instead he mocked them. So David's impulse control is at a dull zero, and he and his 400 men you know, they strap on their sword, they're going to go kill Nabal and all of his men. That's the plan. And it's only when this, this wise and beautiful Abigail intervenes that David is able to see that this would have brought blood guilt upon him, uh, that impulsive and rash act of vengeance would have made David, would have made David guilty. It would have been sinful. So, so this impulse to take out those who are against him is something that, that David is continually dealing with in fairly significant ways as of late. The Lord has brought uh, circumstances to him that has prevented him. But as of late, David is dealing with this rash uh, kind of immediate impulse to exercise vengeance. And we know if it weren't for the conviction of the Lord or the presence of Abigail in the last two chapters, David would have been a murderer before he would have been a king. And as Abigail makes clear, that, that, is, that is not fitting for the Lord's anointed one. That can't be the way this goes. And so here we are now again in the center of Saul's camp with Saul's spear right there. And Saul has been acting in a very evil way toward David again. He's still pursuing David, even though the last time we talked, or they talked together, Saul admitted that it was evil to do so. Here he is doing the exact same thing again. And, and, and Saul's welcomed the betrayal of the Ziphites again, who are David's own tribesmen. And the spear next to Saul's head, we have to remember, is the spear that on two separate occasions Saul had hurled at David to pin him to the wall. Right? So, so justifiably, it seems again, I mean, this is the time. This is the time to kill Saul. And to top it all off, Abishai is there with David. And Abishai is perfectly happy to do the work that seems to, to need doing. 
He actually uses the same language that's used to describe Saul trying to pin David to the wall. Abishai uses that language and says, how about if I just pin him to the ground? One time is all it's going to take. So, so, so just put all this together and get a sense of the enormous temptation that would have been present for David to indulge in his rash, vengeful impulses. Right? Impulses which have been very present in the chapters leading up to this. It would seem so justifiable to kill Saul. In fact, David could even have, have technical deniability because Abishai is, is ready to do the deed instead of David. Instead of David. And, and even just the fact Abishai is there, he's that kind of companion that doesn't calm things down. He's the one who kind of gets everybody going. And we know this about Abishai uh, because if, we talked about this earlier in 1 Samuel, but one of the ways that, that Hebrew narrative tells us about a person's character is by giving us something in the first words the character speaks in the narrative that reveals kind of who they are. And the first words that Abishai here speaks uh, is, is, is centered on a spiritual approval to pin somebody to the ground with a spear. So, so we kind of know this about Abishai, which will actually prove true because later on in 2 Samuel 16, uh, David is being mocked by this fellow um, Shimei, and, and Abishai speaks again there, and he says, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and remove his head. So this is just who Abishai is as a person. He's, just re he's ready to go all the time. Right? He's hardly a calm support here for David. He's ready to kill Saul. Put all this together, and what would we expect? Well, we would expect uh, David to either kill Saul himself, let Abishai kill Saul, or, or, we would be or we would expect to be told something maybe like, like David's conscience was pricked again, and he, and he, didn't, and he didn't kill the king. Or we, or we would have some person who's the opposite of Abishai, another Abigail-type character, enter the scene who uh, affects the situation with the wisdom of God and says, you must not do this kind of thing. That, that's what we would expect to happen. Either Saul's dead or something's got to, got to intervene because we, we know what David is like. But in the text, none of that happens. All we're told is that instead of entertaining any rash, vengeful impulses whatsoever, in verse 9, David immediately responds to Abishai and says, don't destroy him. He can't lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent. So, so without any recorded pangs of conscience, without any intervention from, from a wise person, David's posture is immediately one of obedience to the Lord. Don't kill God's anointed which is quite a unique thing to see in the life of David because, because what we're seeing is that in the midst of the, of the greater temptation to kill Saul, after all, Saul is still chasing David even after he's admitted it's evil to do so. But in the midst of this great temptation and seemingly justifiable temptation to kill Saul, um, what we see is that David's faith has progressed in a way that's evidenced in an even deeper and quicker allegiance to God's way. Greater temptation is present, but without even flinching, David alone, with no one to prod him, David chooses the righteous option immediately. So, so what we're seeing here is this is not the same David of chapter 24, and this is not the same David of chapter 25. So, so it's quite a picture that's given to us here. David's life, we know this, David's life is far from perfect, and David will still falter in massive ways. But what we're showing here is that David is a man who is progressing in his life of submission to God's way. And, th and that's what a life of faith is. A progression of growth in faithful obedience to the Lord. That's what a life of faith looks like. I quoted this to you before, I think, but it was, it was Jim Mitchell, who was the founder of Multnomah University here in Portland. He would describe our life of faith 
by saying it's not where you're at, it's the direction you're going. It's not where you're at, it's the direction you're going. And, and David is going in the direction of more quick and complete obedience. His faith is maturing. And so, and so this provides some truth for our own reflection. Um, even if we just think recently, even very recently, has, has my posture under God been one of moving toward more and quicker obedience or one away from obedience? It's not where you're at, it's the direction you're going. We can ask ourselves these questions amid temptation, amid pressure, amid betrayal even, amid those things that, uh, that exercise our souls, as Newton put it, amid trials, am I more quick to yield to God's truth and walk in His way than I was, say, yesterday? So with the Lord's help, we, we want to be renewed in a life of faith, maybe even beginning uh, that point of renewal this morning. We, we, want to be, we want to be renewed in a life of faith that is quick to uh, a, a complete posture of obedience before the Lord, not least of all when temptations run hotter. And, and, the, and the great encouragement on this side, as we look back on what's been happening with David, the great encouragement on this side is this is the kind of thing the Lord works in us. We see God's activity. Uh, David confesses the Lord's activity through Abigail. We see the Lord's activity in quickening David's heart in the earlier chapter, in chapter 24. This is what David. This is what the Lord has been bringing David along through in order that he would grow in this way. We can look back on those experiences that sometimes seem so so pointless. Why in the world would David would David have been presented with the temptation of Saul in the mouth of his cave, ready to kill him? Why would the Lord, in His providence, allow that to have happened? Well, now we can look back and we can see that through those circumstances, the Lord was bringing David through this training process of trusting. And now fruit is being is being born as we see David engaging in a much different way than he would have two chapters ago. And so even in that, we take encouragement from the experiences of our own lives and we reflect in that way. In what way is the Lord in the immediacy of what I'm facing? Strange providences. I don't even know why I'm having to deal with these things I'm dealing with. But in what way can I look and see the Lord working on my heart to move me from a place of this amount of faith and obedience to a place of greater faith and obedience, even amid harder times? And so David helps us see that process that the Lord is bringing him through, and it helps us check our own hearts and perspective as we face those kinds of things too. And, and, and we ought to know, we ought to know that, that this growth is not just a matter of moving from sinning to not sinning. We don't need to think in those ways in terms of in terms of our spiritual growth alone. It's not like I'm, I'm, I'm sinning a bunch here and I hope to be sinning a little less here. It should be noted that, that as we grow in grace, that is a progress of faith that is not always just about sinning less than we did before. Because we remember this even from the, the book of Hebrews where we're told in chapter 5 that Jesus himself in his earthly ministry, what did he do? Jesus, the sinless one, learned obedience through what he suffers. So, so, so this kind of progress of obedience, it needs to be something we understand is taking place constantly as the Lord is, is in the business of transforming us into a greater and greater posture of trust before us. It's not something that we need to be discouraged by. It's something that we need uh, to, to engage in uh, with, with uh, a greater expectation of growth in faith. And so David's growing in obedience. That's, that's first here in his, in his life of faith. Uh, secondly, when it comes to uh, living a life of faith, we're also so, showing something here about David's trust in the known amid the unknowns. And then this, so, so the dialogue continues here. It's here. So if you just look at verses 10 and 11. So, so the dialogue continues here. David added, as the Lord lives, 
the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. However, because of the Lord, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, and so on. But, but you notice how David's perspective is formed here. David starts with the known. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him down. Multiple times in the narrative, David has been affirmed in the fact that the Lord is the one who will exercise vengeance on his enemies. The Lord is the one who's going to bring David to the throne. David knows this is true. As the Lord lives, the Lord's going to take care of Saul. But David also doesn't know how that will take place. So we have David listing a few possibilities. Either his day is going to come and he'll die, or he'll die in battle. There are a couple options. Maybe that's how God will do it, one of those two ways. That's how Saul's death is, it might happen. But, but it's the unknown for David. And what is known in verses 10 and 11 is, is that David is not going to be the one to do it. God is. God's going to deal with Saul. I don't know how, but I know the Lord will bring it about. Natural death, battle death could be anything. And again, this is such a useful lesson in what it looks like to live by faith. Because what's clear to David is not only his posture of obedience. He's not going to kill Saul. But what's also really clear is that the Lord will do what he said he would do. David knows the Lord has made him king, and the Lord will be the one to bring this justice against Saul. That's clear. The how's not clear. The how's up to the Lord, and, and there's a few things uh, that, that might uh, be, be proved to be the way the Lord works. We don't know. But again, in this, we find a very useful lesson because we, we can face these things. You may be facing something right now. And you face it like David, knowing that God will act as he has promised for your good. You know that. If you don't know that, know that. The Lord will act as he's promised for your good for all those who are in Christ. The promises of God for his people are that he'll finish the good work he began in us in Philippians. We have that. right? He'll work all things according to our good for his purposes in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from his love. The Lord's good, saving, redeeming preserving, resurrecting purposes will stand in our lives, no doubt. Just no doubt, full stop. To use, to use Davidish language from verse 10, as the Lord lives, the Lord will do for us what he's promised to do for us. That, that's just true. But where we can get very discouraged in our lives of faith is when we start thinking that our peace is actually found not in the known, but in knowing the unknown, the how of how God is going to act. So we can become troubled as we start to think that, that peace will come by sorting out what's actually not something we're able to, to comprehend, namely the, the how of the Lord's action. And isn't that where trouble so often comes for us? It's, it's, where, it's where it comes for me. I, I know the Lord will act for my good. It's just a cognitive awareness. The Spirit of God works in our hearts. The Lord will act for my good. He'll act for your good. His Word says it. The cross of Christ proves it. Right? His faithfulness to me in my life Time and time again, it continues to display it. As the Lord lives, I know the Lord will work for my good. But the situation comes, and where my faith gets frail is thinking that I've got to know the unknown. The how. The how God will be working for my good. So that internal, almost unconscious prayer can go something like, Lord, I know you work all things for my good. What I'd really like now for you to make clear in the next 20 minutes or so is exactly how you're going to bring the relief of what I need or whatever it might be. So you see what David's posture is here. He's able to remain steadfast in his faith and obedience because he knows the known. As the Lord lives, he'll do what he said. That's the known. And when it comes to the unknown, David doesn't have to know. 
He just makes a list of a couple possibilities in verse 10. Saul may die naturally. He may die in battle. All I can say is I will obey. And, and this is a very useful thing to notice about living by faith. We know that God will keep us. But when it comes to the how, so often that is the big unknown. And that's okay. And in fact, what, what we have in this text can offer a very useful spiritual exercise. I wonder if you've ever done this. I've never done this, but I think I might, having, having spent some time here. We don't know how God will bring us the help we need, but it doesn't, make a, it doesn't hurt to make a list sometimes of the way that God just might work, like David does here. Right? It almost sounds silly, but that's what David does. It might be this or it might be that. You know, right now you're facing a unique pressure, and, and, and what's getting you is you're not sure how the Lord will bring you through. Start with the known. He's going to bring you through. And then, just, just as an exercise in thinking about the countless ways the God who is almighty might work, we exercise our finite minds and we make a list or two. Right? He might do this. He might do that. Right? Help may come in this particular way. It may come in another way. That list can inform our prayers, not, not in, in the sense of telling the Lord what to do, but in ways of coming before God and saying, even as I and all my finiteness make this list, I recognize that the options are manifold for the way you're going to preserve me in these things, and I'm going to trust in you. This brings us to a posture of recognizing the God who is known to us as our preserver will be a God who works through circumstances yet unknown uh, because he is the one who keeps his promises. And so David trusts in the known, makes a list about the unknown, and he continues on as he, as he uh, lives in, in this posture of obedience here. And that's just very practical for us. Um, so we have, we have that in mind. And then, and then we, we keep going here. And there's another element of David's faith that's reflected here, which is, which is I don't know, David's transcendent priority. I don't know a better way to put that. Um, his transcendent priority. And this, this is something we see throughout David's dialogue here in the chapter, and that just in the recorded words of David, uh, we have David referencing the Lord, we have him referencing Yahweh 16 times. Now there's a little difficulty in the English translation here. We've got the lowercase Lord, where he's talking to Saul, or you know, they talk back and forth. That's like the word for master, or you know, the, the, that's a respectful word. Then there's the capital L-O-R-D, which is, which is Yahweh, God's covenant name. And so David, in his dialogue, uses the covenant name, the promise-keeping name of God, 16 times as he's speaking. So, so we immediately understand that David's own posture, David's own heart condition, is elevated among the, above the immediacy of his horizontal experience. He's thinking transcendently. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He's talking about the promise-keeping God all through this. And those references aren't trite, but the reality of living out his life under God is, is, is seen as controlling the entirety of David's experience here. So, so for example, in verse 19, he says that if he's done any wrong, he's accountable to the Lord, not Saul. He's speaking to the current king and he's saying, quite frankly, I don't, I don't really care what you think, but I'll be accountable to the Lord whether I've done wrong or right. He's concerned vertically. Again, in verse 19, he actually condemns Saul for pursuing David so much that he's going to be driven away from the inheritance of the Lord. That's a way of speaking about the promised land of Israel. So David speaks of being driven away from the inheritance of the Lord to worship other gods. Now, now, now this is, is true in, in the sense that, uh, you know, in the next chapter, David knows he's not safe from Saul. So he does go, leaves Israel and goes and lives in the land of the Philistines for a while. Uh, but David's point here is not that he's going to abandon the faith and worship other gods because Saul's chasing him. 
His point is that, that what's really bothering him in all that's gone on is that David is being pressed out to the wilderness and beyond, away from God's people, away from God's place of promise, which in effect is to say David is being driven away from God's presence, like he points out in verse, in verse 20. So, so we see, interestingly here, that David's not so upset about the spear-throwing and, and wilderness-chasing Saul expedition per se. That's not what's the big thing bothering David. The big thing bothering David is what that is causing to take place in his life and that he's being driven away from God's people in God's land of promise. It's a transcendent concern that's, op that's, that's uh, operating there in David's mind. And just to punctuate this transcendent priority, David says in verse 24 that basically all he cares about is that the Lord would consider his life valuable and rescue him. Which is interesting in, in verse 24 if you, just, if you just look at that there. Um, David says to Saul, just as I considered your life valuable today, in other words, I didn't, I didn't kill you when I could have, just as I considered your life valuable today, so may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all my trouble. It's interesting he doesn't say to Saul, because I considered your life valuable today, would you please start considering my life valuable? We'd like to do some horizontal exchange here. No, that, that is not David's priority. Just as I considered your life valuable today, Quite frankly, I don't care what you think about that. Would the Lord consider my life valuable because I've been obedient to him? So David's concern for the approval of God here registers as the, as the, the top priority in his own mind, even as he's facing this adversary that's before him. And, and, so, and so all of this, it just helps us consider what it looks like to, to live a life of faith. What's, what's prioritized in David's life is not his material comfort and even his physical danger, um, what's prioritized is David's relationship with the Lord and what the Lord thinks. He's not even concerned about the king, king's opinion of him or what the king's going to do. And so this morning we can, we can check our priorities uh, by this, uh, which, which is something very important to do. In, in, in my life of faith, am I more concerned about my immediate situation and, and what others think and have to say about my situation then I am about God's presence with me and God's evaluation of me and what I'm going through. I tell you, even just reflecting on this, what an extraordinary promotion of faithfulness there would be in our lives if we were just in the habit of checking our hearts in every situation by the question, is it the Lord's approval of what I do that matters most here? Is it the Lord's approval of what I do that matters most here? We know that we are in communion with the Lord by grace. We are not seeking the Lord's approval in order that we would be accepted into His presence. But we want to live out our lives before the Lord, seeking His smile because He has extended grace to us. David lives out of the fact that he is in communion with this God who he knows to be his rescuer, his preserver, the promise-keeping God. And as a result of that, he wants to live for the smile of that God. So what would it look like for me in all, these, in all these circumstances and situations to live for the approval of the Lord? That's what matters most. And that's what, that's what David's evidencing in his own life, life of faith. Which, of course, is exactly what Jesus did in, in, in John's Gospel. We read that, don't we? Well, what, what does Jesus say? He says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. What, what really sustains me is being obedient according to, to, to God's will. That's the thing. That's the thing. So, so just as Jesus lived for the purposes of God the Father, uh, here we have David living for the Lord's smile. 
And, and, then, and then with that posture of faith, we do see that there's a reward in verse 23. David says the Lord will repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. Now, obviously, we have failings. Uh, righteousness and loyalty, we have failings in that. The Lord Jesus is the only one who has no failings in righteousness and loyalty. The Lord Jesus is the one who's been repaid with resurrection life. He's been vindicated. And we, by grace, participate in the great glory that's been granted to Jesus because of his perfection and righteousness and loyalty to God the Father. That's, that's the amazing truth of the gospel. And this, this principle, though, it still stands as we think about the way the Lord repays those who are faithful to him. And, and, this, and this does work out just in very practical ways. The Lord rewards those who are loyal to him. And we can think of many examples. Even if we just think about the one who trusts in the Lord instead of acting out in vengeance. What is the reward for that? Well, the reward for that person is a peaceful heart. How about a reward for, for the one who speaks gently? Right? The one who speaks gently according to God's spirit-wrought work in our hearts as we speak for the building up of others. What is the reward for that? Well, it's nurtured, rich relationships where others are willing to listen and we have this kind of uh, capacity to exchange words and experiences with one another that are marked by grace instead of strife. Or for the one who trusts in the Lord for fulfillment instead of indulging in lust. We know the reward is rich companionship. Or for the one who trusts in the Lord instead of loving money. The reward is a heart that's not constricted by material concerns that can get us so tangled up, but instead uh, we're relieved by God's promised provision. Whatever it is, it may be a martyr's reward, but that reward will be glorious for the one who trusts in the Lord and is, and is faithful to Him. Which is the point Jesus makes in Matthew 6, isn't it? Seek first the kingdom of God, and what? You're going to be miserable? Right? Life will be over for you? Right? There will be no flourishing there for you? We certainly do know the Christian life can bring deep hardships. But what does Jesus say? Trust in the Lord. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and what? All these other things will be added to you. The things that you seem so worried about, the Lord's going to take care of you. He will preserve you. He will provide for you. Those things come. But here's our priority. This is where our loyalty lies. And on the other side of that, life, life comes. There's flourishing to be found there. Which, of course, is what we see in this passage, just in the practical fact that the Lord brought that deep sleep upon Saul's camp and gave David victory. That's what David's immediately thinking about. The Lord's done this amazing work, so we've been victorious here. The reward for the faithful one. And so all that helps us just, just frame and maybe reframe aspects of our life of faith. Um, there's, there's more we could say here about David. It's a long dialogue. You can read it for homework. But we just need to, before we close out, we need to say one thing about the bad lesson that's here too. And the bad lesson is here with Saul, as we would expect. We don't say too much about Saul because the text doesn't say too much about Saul here. But, but he, does, he does get a little space to speak. And, and what Saul proves is he proves to be an alternative to genuine faith. You notice that in all Saul does get to say in this chapter, this is just such a, the, the, even, even depicted in the narrative, the gap that's between David and Saul geographically reflects a gap that's between David and Saul spiritually. David references Yahweh 16 times. Saul references Yahweh zero times. No, no references to the Lord whatsoever. Even when he blesses David, he blesses David's betrayers earlier in the name of the Lord. By this time, he has nothing. When he blesses David, even in the end, we know it's just, just, it's just totally impotent and unattached to any true kind of righteousness because he doesn't even mention the Lord's name there. And, and even in here, Saul confesses that he sinned. 
But in Saul's confession of sin here, he uses the exact same words he used back in chapter 15, confessing sin. And between chapter 15 and now, we see those words of confession have meant nothing in the life of Saul. He said them, but he just kept doing the same stuff. So there's no true repentance. He just keeps going in the same way that's contrary to God. And, and we, see this, we see this in Saul and that he, he, he doesn't actually want the Lord, as, as, as Yahweh isn't even mentioned once, but, but all Saul wants is in verse 21 where he wants David to come back. He said that, come, come back with me, my son. Right? We're not told why right here he wants David back, but we do know from earlier chapters why Saul likes to have David around. Why does Saul like to have David around? Well, earlier, Saul noted that when David was leading his army, he was always winning. So it's nice to have David around because the Lord blesses David's efforts and he wins when he goes out to war for me. It was also really nice to have David around because when David played music for Saul, the evil spirit that was tormenting him on the other side of his disobedience to God, that, that evil spirit would leave him and Saul would find a modicum of relief. David brought relief. David brought victory. Saul doesn't want David around because he desires to promote God's choice king. Saul only wants David around so he can profit from God's choice king. What can I get out of this guy? And, and so this is, in a sense, quite the lesson in, in false faith, I suppose. This, this confession of sin with no true turning from those sinful practices. Right? There are those who use spiritual language. They may even engage in spiritual practices, Saul did. But ultimately, they are not concerned with yielding to and promoting God's choice king. They're concerned instead just to use it. A little religion, a little bit of God's anointed king might make things better for me. It's been a number of years now, but one Sunday afternoon I was invited over to a man's house because he told me that his, his girlfriend wanted to become a, a Christian, and so she needed to talk. And so I went over and I was talking with her, and she said that she had a number of things that she wanted fixed in her life, and she thought Jesus could fix them. And so we talked about the renewing power of Christ, I mean, the life he brings to all aspects of, of, our, of our life. There's extraordinary gospel hope that's there. Uh, but then we, we talked about some practices that she was involved in, which would have to go if she were to turn to Christ. And, and she got angry, and, and she said this, to my recollection, she, she said something to the effect of, I just want Jesus to help me with my problems and leave the rest of my life alone. I just want Jesus to help me with my problems and leave the rest of my life alone. And, and I, at the time, I tried to speak more about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, but that was pretty much the end of the conversation. She wasn't, she wasn't really interested. And in a sense, that's how Saul's treating God's choice king here. He just wants out of David uh, benefits that suit him. Uh, Saul's not really subjecting himself to the, to the purposes of God as the past chapters have shown, as the next chapters will continue to show. Saul, Saul just wants God's choice king to help him in the way he wants help. And, and that's not faith. That's, that's the opposite of faith. That's creating a God in our own image to do our own bidding. That's actually trying to be the Lord over our lives, which is the root of all sin all over again. And so we see that in Saul, and it helps us just to notice that. It helps us to notice that in our own lives, and, and set in contrast with David's example here, we find ourselves in a posture of prayer. We find ourselves recognizing that the Lord Jesus is the king I need. I need the Lord Jesus. I don't understand the ways he always works. I don't understand the how, how he's going to bring me through, but I know he's faithful to preserve me. And while I might be tempted to set my own agenda, while I might be tempted to uh, explain exactly how I'd like the Lord to do things in the next day or so with what I'm dealing with, instead of that, we're brought to a place of submission. I know you will work for my good, O oh Lord. I know that. How? I don't know. I might make a list, 
I know, you, I know you're all powerful. You can work in so many ways as I make a list. I might be renewed in that, but ultimately, Lord, I'm going to find myself trusting in you because you're the one uh, to whom I ultimately owe allegiance. You're the one uh, that I want to have smiling upon my life. You're the one who preserves me and I will subject myself to you entirely. That, that is, at the end of the day, what it is to live a life of faith. And with that, it's not where you're at, it's the direction you're going. That is, that is the trajectory of the Christian life. It's not that I've been perfect this week or that I've been imperfect last week and hope to do better now and that's really, that's really the main goal. The reality is the Lord is working on us constantly and continually. And as we rest in His continued care, we find ourselves going along in a way that leads to life. It's not where we're at. It's the direction we're going. And while we go in that direction, we learn to trust and obey. So we confess with the, with the hymn writer, the Lord moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea, he rides upon the storm, deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. What a, what a description of God. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So you know the next line. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Right? This, is, this is how the Lord works and this is what we trust Him to do. And David, in this way, he renews us in what it ultimately looks like uh, to live out a life trusting the superior King. Let's pray together. <clears throat> so Father, renew us in this and give us the grace we need to press on. Uh, we are thankful for Your Word, which points us in the way of Your Son and the life that's there. We feel our weakness uh, but we're thankful that through circumstances we face, you're the faithful one uh, to continually bring us to places of growth and progress. We're dependent upon you for that, and we ask that you would work that way in all of us and, and in us corporately as a congregation. We desire to grow in our faith and trust in you. So help us to this end. For Jesus' sake, amen.